The following podcast contains mature language and adult discussion. This week on Kayfabe, stories you're not supposed to hear. Todd, Todd was a great force in the show. He was a great force in the locker room. But other than him financially opening the door and letting Paulie in, how do you credit that? You know, I mean, you can't give him a whole lot because he wasn't doing the work. All right, back again, Kayfabe. You have returned, so we're doing something right. Shout out to some patrons here. I said I'd give it every week, and uh, I'm going to thank some more folks who've come on board. Alyssa in Chains, Brandon Petrie, uh, Chris, Matt Cardone, Mike McNeil, Patrick Corbett, Terry Lynn, Tyson Brown. Thank you, guys. Um, going to give a shout out to a few of my co-producers each week. That's how we do this. If you want to contribute, you go to Kfabe. Uh, you go to patreon.com slash podcast and uh, show the love. Let us know you like it. You're saying you like it. Would you be honest with me, though? I think you'd be honest. Would you be honest? you got to be a critic sometimes when you're a friend. When you befriend other people in the arts, it's hard. Sometimes you, sometimes you just got to chicken out. You know, you just got to take the path of, you know, it doesn't need to be me that does this. It doesn't need to be me that delivers the message to so-and-so that the play you were just in was balls awful. It doesn't have to be me to say this uh, short film you've been working on for two years should have been abandoned long ago. So should it be you to tell me that the podcast blows? I don't know. It's up to you. It's a personal choice. If you don't think so, become a Patreon. You know, that that, that makes the best teachers, the, the ones that could be honest. I guess there's a way to do it. There's, you know, it brings to mind my, my film teacher in college. I was so blessed to have Marcus Eisenstein, not to be confused with Sergei Eisenstein of the uh, Odessa Step sequence in... in uh, <laughs> It's just fortuitous that he had the the same last name. But, uh, yeah, Marcus was, God, he had to be 80 when I had him, okay? And he'd shuffle around the building and in his tan corduroy jacket and his old man shuffle coming around the corner. Say, hey, Sean, what are you working on over there, kid? You got something going on in there? And he'd poke his head in the editing room. And Marcus was a genius, and Marcus pulled no punches. Um, Marcus was an artist, and it helps to be taught by an artist. You don't, you don't go to school to learn commerce. No, my time at uh, New Jersey City University was uh, to learn art, the art of film, television, and radio. And Marcus was great. Marcus, Marcus made a couple of feature films that were considered art house at best and you know some would find it challenging even to sit through them but marcus was great because marcus was we would just plop down on a couch in between classes and people would pass by and drop on the couch next to him for some wisdom and bring up anything you know hey marcus you see the last uh, tarantino film ah it's tarantino bullshit you just could see bad guys talk like that if you watch an old Cagney movie. I don't have to watch Tarantino. 
I heard one of the greatest film reviews he ever gave. Somebody walked up and said, Marcus, did you see Robert Altman's shortcuts? He goes, ah, I didn't really care for it, but there was one nice red bush in it. I forget the actress's name. Was it Julianne Moore, maybe? Had a full frontal scene. That was Marcus's review. So Mar- Marcus was incredibly irreverent, too, to the, to the staff that he didn't like. There was a professor I had, Professor... Um, oh, God. Professor... Uh, God. Maselli was his last name. He was a media media professor, and he would he would give like his whole class was lecture, and it was like it was it was almost stream of consciousness. He would sit down and say, "Marshall McLuhan, as you've read in Understanding Media, has said that media surrounds us. We're an involuntary participant in media," and he would nonstop. He would talk for three hours. I tried to take notes. It was like the confessions of a madman. And uh, he, at the end of, at the end of the, at the, at the end of the class, you never knew what you were going to be tested on because he would just give a book to read and then he would talk for three hours nonstop. And you got the sense that he just was loving hearing himself talk. Now, Marcus couldn't stand him. So Marcus made a short film called shedding darkness on the situation and he put the camera on himself and he just spoke and as he spoke he had one of the students close the aperture of the camera this is back when we shot film so you had a you know aperture like you weren't looking at a monitor you just kind of had a no you took light readings and you knew what to set your lens to um so the uh and he would just have him slowly close frank maselli was the name frank maselli and he go so marcus sat there and he went blah 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 and had a kid close the aperture of the camera and he dedicated the film to frank maselli shedding darkness on the situation it was called he made a film with david johansson called god is on our side i have a small part in that if you want to go find that that's available somewhere too it's feature length David Johansson, Buster Poindexter, plays God during a war, and he is coaxed down to be uh, on our side, on on the Army's side. So now they have God on their side in, in the war. But God is, you know, wants to go perform at the bottom line. And he does. He sings throughout the film. It's very, listen, it's avant-garde. Um, so Dave, there's David Johansson, right, in his full Buster Poindexter greatness, but he's wearing a white like a uh, robe and above him is a, is a halo, like a kitchen, almost like a, a fluorescent circular kitchen light, which is uh, strapped to uh, a, a harness on his back, which is always floating over his head. And it's connected by an, a, an orange extension cord, which goes out of the pack in the back and then up disappears in the top of the frame. It's brilliance. Remember we were shooting one scene. And it was very much a favor to Marcus. You know, Marcus knew all these the, the downtown scene in Manhattan, man. So he knew guys like Johansson. And, uh, so he asked him to be in the film, and, and he agrees, not knowing what he's getting himself into. He's being dragged out for these late-night shoots. He's got to put on his garb, his god garb. And um, at one point, he's climbing a ladder because <laughs> he's got to descend into the foxhole to help us soldiers 
And uh, he's grumbling as he climbs the ladder. And I said, you want me to hold that, Dave? He goes, I feel like fucking Bela Lugosi and Ed Wood. Where's the fucking octopus? Tremendous. He's unbelievable. But Marcus's criticisms were what made him valuable. I mean, he was valuable for for his wisdom and just his, his intricate knowledge of all cameras. I mean, you go to him with a problem and say, Marcus, I shot a roll of film last week for my project. And, you know, I, I, I took a measurement and I had the, because you also had to do that, folks. You had to measure with a tape measure to your subject, to the, uh, the, the point where the film was passing through the gate and set that measurement and your light reading. And that gave you the setting to put on your, uh, on your, on your, on your, uh, lens and so marcus would sit there and say you know i think the nodal point of that lens is off and he could give you the whole dissertation how to fix your deal but there was a there was a young man named sean mcgrath in my class god bless him he went on to work at trauma films the uh the folks that did um the toxic avenger he made this fucking movie for his final and we all sitting around it's the last day and you know grab a beer and go down and sit with marcus and he would screen all the films and you had to put them on a steam back table a flatbed um you know where the the film would pass from one reel to the other i mean this was film man it's not video and it's not digital so we're running film you could barely hear anything the damn tables were so loud you had to like crank the audio so you'd throw your film up there and and you'd run it through the table and you'd screen it for marcus and this kid mcgrath did this fucking it was like one guy walking down the street in one direction another guy in another they each have briefcases they go up to the roof they exchange briefcases and one guy pushes the other guy off the roof unbelievable right so it, it finishes everyone's quiet and marcus is just sitting there looking down and he says McGrath, why don't you be a shoemaker? Why do you want to make films? You could be a shoemaker, and you can make women's shoes, and you can make men's shoes, and you can make men and women so happy if you would just take my advice and be a cobbler. Please don't be a filmmaker. So, you know, uh, you could hear a pin drop throughout the room and we all get busy with whatever we're drinking or eating and just kind of turn our heads down but you know what god damn it he was right that's the thing to say and that's the lesson i mean what was college all about i don't know what the fuck was my degree all about i don't know but what it taught me was whether it's a fellow shoot interview uh, a competitor a a host in the business a, a podcaster sometimes you just have to turn to somebody and say have you ever considered being a shoemaker All right, listen, do you read wrestling books there's a ton of them out there right you got memoirs you got wrestlers memoirs The Business of Kayfabe, Turning Wrestlers' Secrets into a Million Dollars, written by yours truly. Okay, now this chronicles the business lessons learned from running Kayfabe commentaries for 12 years. My first book, Kayfabe, uh, Stories You're Not Supposed to Hear from a Pro Wrestling Production Company owner. 
number one bestseller in the wrestling category for almost 19 months, okay, on Amazon. This follow-up, the business of kayfabe, what are the business lessons inside these stories? What is there to learn from all of this time running the company? The personalities in pro wrestling have always been some of the most unique and entertaining in the world. And for more than 10 years, Kayfabe Commentaries has been the leading production company in the genre. Now you'll go inside the company. You'll see how it's done. Me, the on-camera ringmaster, co-owner of the company, I'm going to take you inside. I'm going to take you through all the components of building the business that brought the real-life personalities behind wrestling's outrageous uh, angles uh, to the masses. From our hits to our cancellations, there were lessons to be learned in all of it. Listen, tons of great stories. It's available in paperback, on Kindle, and on audiobook. Go check out Audible or grab it on iTunes, however you listen to your audiobooks. The Business of Kayfabe. All right, I once again get to call a grown man, Raven, now. Raven, how you been? Good, good. You sound pretty tired. You know what? I hope I don't. I'm tired of reading on the internet that I don't have the charisma of Conrad Thompson, for God's sakes. Charisma? I said you sound tired. Yeah, well, it, it affects it. Listen, listen. We The last time we talked, we did a my, one of my favorite episodes of Breaking Kayfabe. Because, I guess we talked a little wrestling, but, you know, the whole thing of that show is that, you know, we talk about, we talk to the person um, as opposed to the business. And I, I got to delve into the National Enquirer, which I loved, and like your whole, like your family background. Did you get any fallout from that show? No, no, I didn't hear not one way, one way or the other, anything. <laughs> People ignored it completely. That's that's always a good sign. In no, I mean, I, I don't really, like, I don't check up on stuff like that. I mean, you know, like, you know, when I first got into business, like, you know, I'd look into Mark books to see if I was, you know, ranked or anything. But, I mean, after the first time I made it, I was in a magazine or, you know, I stopped caring anymore because I was like, All right, I already did it. It's, it's like, it, you know, it's it, it becomes passe. And, and I'm not going to, you know, if I if I take what people say, like on Twitter and social media, if I take their negative, I got I take their if I take their positive, I got to take their negative comments. Right. You know, and either way, it's it's just somebody's opinion. You know, I mean, I got enough um, self-respect and self-esteem and self-worth now that I'm not affected by what other people judge me as. So you went out and got so, some of that. Uh, you went out and got some of that. Yes, I well, it took me a long time. That's that's why I was so egotistical for so many years because I'd so I had a complete lack of self worth, you know. Right. No self. I mean, you know, and my dad, my dad was really funny. He was like Don Rickles, but it was all insult humor, you know, which I loved. But I didn't realize it was all, you know, and and of course he never could say he loved me, but so, but I didn't realize that all the negative jokes, even though they were funny destroyed my sense of self-worth which is why i became so egotistical and irritated so many people around me you know because you know that's the only way i knew how to you know feel functional but you did know? you laugh along with it with your father yeah, like and my mom would say she'd say oh I'll leave him alone and i'm like no it's okay because i wanted the attention you know right but it was just the wrong you know but because you, i'm too you're too young to realize what a deleterious effect it has you know Right. 
That's thank you for getting deleterious on my podcast too. It it, it classes it up a little bit. Um, Paul Levy is your father. Was yes. your father right? Was my father uh, a big personality? Uh, a big man? You told us with a robust set of testicles. You actually mentioned falling out of yeah. his out of his shorts as he wandered around the house. True. Yes, pretty much. Um, now, if I have to do a quick recap for anybody who's not familiar, um, the Paul Levy was the what was the title? Uh, editor, managing editor, senior uh, editor, senior editor of the National Enquirer in in its heyday, seventies, eighties. Yes. Yeah, when um when they were at their peak um, drawing power, he was the number two guy in the in the company. Right now, I I had the opportunity to see after we talked a documentary on Netflix um, about the Inquirer. Did you see it? I think. No, I think it was it was called Inquiring Minds. I think, Um, and you had told me for the first time about the legacy of Generoso Pope. Yeah, who they went into big time and his whole history in this. Another huge personality. So, I guess a mob figure. Am I? Can I say that without getting whacked? Is it? Is yeah, that... he, he was definitely a mob related. He was connected. So I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he was more adjacent. Like he personally was adjacent, but I'm pretty sure his family was mobbed. You know, you know, mobbed up because it didn't. It, it never um, interfered with the with the business, right? Like, like it was never. I mean, you never had like Santo Traficante walking down the hallway. <laughs> That's why I think he was adjacent. I mean, I didn't talk to my dad about it a whole lot, you know. Um, but uh, but I, I get the impression that, that that Pope was adjacent, you know, mob adjacent. But did um, did you uh, were you like surrounded by by celebrity? No, no, and that's interesting because, like, the um, well, celebrity culture wasn't to the extent that it is now. I mean, now it's just you know that that whole thing that Andy Warhol said that everybody will have fifteen minutes. That really started to come true in the last twenty years, you know. But this is back in the seventies and early eighties, where, um, you know, they. It wasn't the celebrity were their celebrities were their main game, but there wasn't a lot of but it wasn't like a scandal a week. You know, I mean, you know, they could live on one scandal for six months, you know, for six weeks or 12 weeks. You know, it's like old school booking versus right, right. The the raw era where you had to do shit every week. Right. It's exactly what it was, because, you know, and, you know, like Elvis's somebody I think somebody got a picture of Elvis's casket or something. And that, you know, that was on the cover for three months or something, you know, because the, the, the stories, I think Hollywood was still, you know, maybe, you know, 20 years before that in the 50s, you know, up to the 50s and early 60s, Hollywood was protected by the studios, you know, so you didn't find out only in drib- really small drips and drabs the behind the scenes stuff. And so that era had started to pass, you know, from what I can gather. And but it's still. It was still a protective wall. It wasn't, you know, you know, like the, the, the biggest deal, I think, was Michael J. Fox's wedding. Like they uh, like Michael J. Fox hired this guy, um, I think uh, Gavin DeBecker, I think. I'm not sure if that's who it was. Oh, the security guy. Yeah, security guy to, to keep the National Enquirer out. 
and and it was like uh, it was like two. My, I think my dad once told me it was like two generals squaring off, you know, with their troops, you know, as uh, as you know, they tried to prevent the inquiry, and, and my dad was trying to you know get his people to infiltrate, oh, you know, and great. but yeah, but but those things, I mean, think about that, like you know, Michael J. Fox was a was a huge star, but you know, but his wedding, I mean, like now you you know, there's eight thousand weddings, you know that. Right. They invite you to the wedding now. They want the publicity. You'd have to. The challenge now wouldn't be the wedding. It'd be like getting him taking a shit in a stall uh, right. somewhere would be the challenge today. Whereas a wedding, people, everyone's posting it on on their own social media. Like like the Kardashians' uh, Ray J tape that made Kardashian famous and made the family. Like they would have been fighting that scandal left and right in the seventies, early eighties. They they never would have. You know, the idea of somebody actually promoting it and pushing it and then people trying to get caught having sex scandals you know to get their publicity their uh, q factor their q uh, isn't it a q, q rating q rating yeah. up um you know so yeah it's a different era what now what what was their favorite fodder i mean uh you know elvis a lot probably right oh yeah elvis big deal um the thing you always heard about was well, Elvis mm-hmm. also had just died what 75 or 76 77 right yeah 77. so he was he was porky and drugged up for the last five years you know and so he was a he was a big get I mean the the, the whole thing that made him that like that was supposed to be the big the big uh, W for Hollywood was when uh Cal Burnett uh sued the inquire and they lost except that they won on my dad told me they won on the appeal so, so they Carol, actually like, never lost the case then. So they never lost the case because, and that's the thing, they could prove everything. They had to because they didn't want to lose money. I mean, it was, it, it wasn't worth it to them to print complete falsehoods. You know, if they wanted to make something up, they'd put it in the Weekly World News. Right. Well, that wouldn't you have Bat Boy flying around and shit. But um, so, I mean, the perception I think from people was that, like, the people at the Inquirer sat around just like like making shit up like what's the craziest thing we could make up but they i were, think that mm-hmm. weekly world news did oh i'm sure they did with the, the crazy yeah. stories but no but i think that people had that had that impression maybe of the inquirer that they would just cook up something on johnny carson one week um just to to have something yeah, but they, they couldn't they couldn't just cook stuff up because they would get sued and 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 you know and, and you get sued enough times you know you're gonna. That's gonna be a pretty bad business model, and especially. And if you, if you lose, people are all they're gonna come. Other people are gonna come after you, so it's gonna be like um like a snowball effect. But did um, why like when, like now like they see all the weird headlines and then now they even show you like they'll go they'll go we printed it for like on a star or whatever they'll say we printed it first so and so is getting a divorce and now six months later aha they're getting the divorce and they really you know they really did get it you know. So, so where would the tips come from? Like, would you be like privy to your dad, like getting a phone call in the middle of dinner and it's like some, some page at NBC telling you, you know, oh, fuck Johnny's all fucked up today or just whatever, something like that. Well, you know, I, I, my dad kayfabed a lot of it. Um, you know, he totally kayfabed a lot of it. And the, um, but it, I mean, it was a, he worked 16 to 18 hours a day, you know. So he didn't have a whole lot of time for me, which, you know, which, 
you know, didn't help matters. So, but I don't, I don't regret it. I mean, it made a great living, you know, so. Is it anything you ever wanted to do? Well, I, I told him, I said, I kind of followed in your footsteps. I go, you worked for a fake newspaper. I worked for a fake wrestling company. How much was he around to see of your, of your wrestling career? He passed away in, uh, I forget, I forget which year. Um, I know the day, but I can't remember the year. Um, yeah, he saw enough of it. He saw me. He saw me get successful. This would be a great, a great Netflix series. Why are we not writing this? Uh, we can, I guess. Just, just like from from the home perspective, not like I mean, we cover the office too, but just growing up around a guy like Paul Levy. Who would play Paul Levy? Who do we cast? Um, let's see. Well, if Peter Boyle was, were still alive and he gained 50 pounds, 70 pounds, because uh, my dad looked like him. Actually, my dad looks exactly like Lenny from Sha Na Na, except he doesn't have red hair. He had brown hair. Plus a few pounds, though, I would yeah, assume. But, well, Lenny was pretty big, too, but he was my dad was, was heavier. Um, well, we got to find uh, someone to play him, then. Yeah, oh, and a funny side story. My dad went to a fat farm one time, one year. And uh, he ended up there with uh, John with John Candy, who was at the same time get training for Brewster's Millions, and he played catch with him. Played uh, baseball. So I, that was like pretty impressive, you know, as a kid. Yeah. You, you ever write any shit about John Candy? No, they were friends. So. I, I don't know. I mean, but but uh, I, I don't remember. I, I I doubt it. I mean, I don't know. I think, you know, I think he thought business was business. You know, I'm I, I don't believe that. I think that uh, you know, personal. You know, sometimes Trump's business, I mean, depending on how close it is. But, you know, I don't know. I don't know. We weren't we weren't exceptionally close. You know, he was a very hard man to get to know. He was always described by other reporters as curmudgeonly. And and but you didn't seem to find that to be the case at home. You said he was kind of funny. You, you used Don Rickles as the example. He was he was hilarious. But he was also just always busy, you know, and. uh you know, like he was because he was a reporter before he was an editor. He was more interested in in he had he had a really hard time dealing with emotions. So, you know, so it was hard for him. You know, so he couldn't say he loved me. He couldn't deal with emotion. Um, he uh, like I remember one time we went to some rest, some bar to get a drink. You know, not to get a drink. He didn't drink, um, but to get some food. And uh, so he started talking to some lady next to him. And basically, the the whole time, the whole night, I, I was in, I was so bummed, like bummed out and pissed off. Like he spent the whole night talking to her instead of me. But I get that as a reporter, you're interested in people you don't know. So I mean, so he, he like he wasn't like Ben Stein. Ben Stein when he I was on when Ben Stein's money, and Ben Stein when he would talk to you, it was like he was he was scouting for trivia. Like you go, hello, your name is, and you went to what school? And oh, and that was in this state, and you were in oh, you were, but you were in that county, and uh, yeah, like, like and it a was Q just and a. Riddles. yeah, yeah, it was a Q and A. My my dad wasn't that bad, but I mean, but you know, he um, I don't know, I got I got really mixed emotions, right. Well, he sounds like a fascinating guy, and it would probably make for for interesting work. And listen, you, it's it would be like therapy. You could work through all the problems as as we develop the script. Come to come to uh, see him, guess, understand him as a man. We could do that. You know, I've I've worked through the I've worked through the baggage. I mean, 
like I'm okay with it now. I'm, I really am. Um, you know, but you know, if I talk about it, it brings up mixed emotions. Cause you know, I have, you know, uh, both all kinds of emotions about it. Cause he was my dad, but you know, but as far as things go, like I'm happy for the way I turned out, you know, I wish I wouldn't have had to struggle the way I did to get to where I am. Um, you know, emotionally anyway, but you know, I'm happy with where I'm at. So really ultimately the last 20 years of your life, you want to be your happiest. I figure because even if it takes you a whole half a lifetime to uh, figure out who and what you are, the end of your life, you want to be happiest because you don't want to go, you don't want to be getting old and, and, you know, and times are, you know, and, and you're becoming less mobile and, and you become, and now you become alone and unhappy and deal with your issues. Then who wants to do that at the end of your life? You know, it, it's why are you putting be... yourself there though? Why are we talking the last 50? I mean, you, you, you're well, 20, I'm 55. I figure I got 30 years, yeah. you know, okay. five, 30 years. I always figured 80, you know, 80 seemed like a good sum. Do, do you get called to work still in the ring? Yeah. I, luckily that people know pretty much now I don't do singles. So I just do uh tags and uh, I don't do a lot of them. I'd rather do run-ins, but you know, I do tags where I come out as a baby face. You know, I won't do, I prefer being a heel, but I got to be a baby face for the tag thing to work because that way, I come in on the shine, no bumping. My whoever my partner is, he takes the heat. So, but he does all the bump, and I get the hot tag, and we go home. Right. And because nobody ever goes home right out of the comeback, when we do it, it gets a bigger pop, and so it, it also keeps me from having to take bumps on the back and forth after the comeback. So it's really just you can work forever if you know if you have psychology. Is everyone open to that to that formula when you go in? Well, I make sure, yeah, I make sure I tell them, I say, look, you know, I'm not going to be taking any bumps, you know, because it's just too much, too much risk against reward. Um, but I'll make, but I'll, I, and you know, if you want me to do the DDT, the Raven effect, I'll let my tag partner, your local guy do it. You know, I'll give him the rub so he can do it and then I'll endorse him for it. And then I, I just, I always tell him, I go, I don't want to wrestle any name guys because name guys, I'm, I'm going to feel obligated to bump for him, but local guys. I'm not because I'm te- I'm also teaching them. Right. Gotcha. Um, so and, and and they like that because I guess they I guess a lot of promoters find that name guys want to work name guys. So when you have a name guy who wants to work a local guy, you know their local guy, that's just you know icing on the cake. Scotty, this is ECW's 25th anniversary. Extreme Championship Wrestling's 25th anniversary this year. Um, you know, you're hearing about that here and there. We had Todd on a couple of weeks ago. So who gets, who gets your anniversary card for this? Who, who? Paulie. Paulie without a doubt. I mean, it, there, there's no company without Paulie. He was, uh, he's kind of an elusive figure. Everyone I've talked to over the years, on camera, off camera, they 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 all have the same Paul E stories, and you know, n- no matter how, no matter how much they're saying he owed them, or some ridiculous scheme concocted to to uh, you know or to not cash a check or to not pay somebody, they always would tell the story with a smile, like he somehow. <laughs> while he's still alive has become like this lovable dastardly figure 
No one's mad at Paulie. There's no reason to be. I mean, he um, if he could have, he would have paid everybody a fortune. I mean, he really would have. He, he wasn't. It wasn't that he didn't want to pay people. You know, he just had financial hiccups. You know, and he was fighting to keep the company alive. You know, as we found out later, it was coming out of his parents. You know, back pocket. Um, but the guy, the guy was a creative genius. He was so charming, and he was so motivating. And he told me this before, and, and I don't know if he's told this to a lot of other people, but to him, he always saw himself as Vince Lombardi. Like, that's how he wanted to be, the guy who could coach anybody, and, and he could. You know, he could he could get you ready for the game, you know, and, and I wish more companies worked had that kind of mentality that, this is a, that we're all a team, let's win this together, because it, it's much more productive, but it's not – but however, for a major company, it's not productive because they don't want when people have contract disputes, they want everybody mad at everybody else for making more money. They don't want you to be mad at the head of the company. You know, so they want to they like when there's dissension among the ranks. But that's not that. But you don't get your best business. You know, it's the old adage. Do you want to be a general who's loved or who's who, or who's feared? You know, I think a general who's loved is going to get better, you know, war going to get a much better job of war done than a guy who's feared. But most people go with the, uh, the fear, uh, way. What's Todd's place in ECW's history? Uh, the, he's the guy that, that made sure the door got open enough for Paulie to get in and then kept it open, I guess. So what if you had to do percentages? I always ask people like, what's the Vince McMahon Hulk Hogan percentage of eighties uh, of the eighties success? Is it fifty fifty? Was it sixty forty? What's the what's the Paul E. Todd percentages of ECW success? I don't think you can go with those just those two. I think I think it was if you I think if you looked at it from I, I, I'm just speculating, but I think it's something like. 50% Pauly, 40% talent, 10% Todd, maybe. I don't know. When you say talent, you mean other people that, that had creative input like Tommy and yourself and well, – or the I whole mean, roster, the whole roster. The whole roster. You know, I think, you know, maybe 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 60% the roster, 50% the roster, 30, 35% Pauly and 5% Todd. You know, and Todd wasn't – Todd was only instrumental. Todd, Todd was a great – great force on the show he was a great force in the locker room but i think but i mean other than him financially opening the door and letting paulie in and then letting paulie do what he does i mean you know do you how do you credit that you know i mean you can't give him a whole lot because he wasn't doing the work but you have to give him the credit for opening the door. But wasn't he, though, behind the scenes, like, coming up with all the stuff? I mean, Paulie might have been presenting it to you, but this was Todd's stuff, too, yes? Like, I creatively? No, not that I know of. I never heard that. I mean, you know, the, the major ideas were Paulie's, you know, or, or some of ours, you know? Okay. I thought that they were kind of, they kind of were the, Maybe they the were. brain trust, I... shared the, the brain trust. I don't know that. I don't know that to be untrue. I just don't know. I never really heard that. Okay. Or, I mean, I've heard that, but I just scoffed at it, you know, because I didn't scoff at it. No, 
I didn't, I didn't, I just dismissed it because I, I only heard it like once or twice, you know I mean? For the majority, I just heard it, you know, it just, and, and, and let's face it, Paulie's stuff, you could tell Paulie has fingerprints, you know? Right. I mean, I don't want to just, you know, if Todd said that he had a much bigger part in it, you know, I, I'm not saying he's a liar. I, I, I guess he did. Did you, get, did looked, you get along okay with, with Todd? Yeah. Yeah. I love Todd. Todd's a great guy. Right. Actually, uh, the um, yeah, no, Todd's a great guy. I, I I would pop in and see him every so often because um, I lived in Philly downtown. So when we were you know we were riding bikes in the city, I'd pop in and see him at the uh, at uh, Diamond Mar Diamond District. Yeah, the store. Um, so if, if you had to write the Paul Heyman story, okay, you're doing the the Hallmark movie of the week. What what are the high points? What are the low points in this story? Uh, low points are him probably getting, I, I, I mean, I don't know his history that well, but I mean, I, you know, I guess when he got fired from WCW, but then the high, then, then it leads to him coming to ECW, you know, um, then having to sell, I see, first of all, I think he could have sold the company, but I don't think he wanted to like Billy Corgan and I are good friends. And, uh, Billy, you know, told, would tell me that, that Paulie wanted to, you know, wanted to charge him some mark price for the company when he wanted to sell it to him. And I told Billy, I said, I don't think he wanted to sell it. I think he wanted the ship to go down with him because if he sells it and it stays big, then it's no longer his baby. Right. And if and if it sinks, then it puts a puts a um, a stink on his name. And whereas if it goes to WWE, well. Then it's then it's just something different, and no matter whether it does good or bad, he's absolved of anything post that, and uh, of, of the negativity. And if it and if it happens to stay good, then it's the it's the franchise that he built. But whereas if it goes to somebody like Corgan, everybody knows what Billy's a very creative guy. Then it then it becomes muddied. Was, was Billy Corgan interested in wrestling as a business back then? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he was gonna. He at one point was gonna buy the company when it was in financial straits. Like early two thousands, late 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 nineties. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and Paulie, and that's when Paulie wanted to charge him, as he puts it, some crazy mark price. Right. <laughs> Where did you fit in in the land of misfit toys here? That was ECW for for any mainstream sane working people that that don't know wrestling history. ECW was kind of a it became a haven for like the castoffs of the business who, who banded together and, uh, and had a renegade product that didn't resemble what was on WWF TV, didn't resemble what was on WCW TV and was successful because of it, because it came around at the right time. Guys like me in our twenties were tired of the pig farmers and the hockey goons and all that shit. And finally, again, we could kind of believe, um, with the guys that were beating the shit out of each other in Philly and the girls. So well, you, to suspend disbelief without you know feeling stupid but that's precisely it you'd have to feel really stupid to suspend disbelief in anything that was going on on tv and the other two but here you know i i, I believe that you know sandman was was wielding that cane as hard as he was and you know he was obviously. was yeah yeah he was until i finally smartened him up um so but so now from personality standpoint you had worked in the other companies why do you think you found such a home in ecw because Paulie cared about my abilities, not my not who I was as a person. 
and he allowed me to be who I wanted to be and, and thrive. And, 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 you know, I always had talent, but I wasn't the biggest guy. Um, you know, I'm, I'm loud. Uh, I'm not everybody's favorite cup of tea. You Why? Know. Why? Eh, you know, I can be obnoxious, you know, I can, be, I can be very egotistical, you know, I mean, you know, I, I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know, going to lie about any of that. I mean, you know, I was a handful. I was high maintenance, but Paulie didn't care because, you know, he knew what I could deliver. Um, and he let me deliver. And that's the thing that's back in the day before there were what, two companies or one company and now two, two or three or four companies now, sort of, um, you used to be able if you if you, if you didn't fit in one place you went someplace else you know if you had talent you were always going to find a haven for it you know it's like you know Jerry Jarrett you know he didn't care what he didn't care if you were a moron if you if you couldn't write English properly if you know as long as you could draw him money that's all he cared about and that's what the business used to be but then it became about people you know you have to fit into clicks and stuff like that which I'm sure all companies have that to an extent. But the people who made the most money were there about making the money, not about worrying about the clicks and all that. You know, how would you how would your life have been different had you uh, found a home in in WWFE or WCW when you were first starting out? Had you never gone to ECW and stayed in the WWE machine? How would that have turned out? I never would have got past mid card. Why size or what? Size and then see once perceptions reality. The perception is the reality. So however they perceive you, that's how you're stuck. So that's why you know I knew like you know when I first got into wrestling, I didn't want to do jobs on TV, you know, for WWE or whatever, because I didn't want to get perceived, you know, pigeonholed as that. Even then, I knew that, so I didn't want to be pigeonholed as a job guy. So I didn't do that. I went to territories and I built up in my name. And then I uh, then I tried to get jobs, you know, um, the uh, and, you know, it, it's, um, you, you know, I also realized watching like there's these two guys um, who were always job guys on uh, WC on TBS, WCW on this Saturday night show called Jim and Mac Jeffers. And then uh, they were always, you, you know, you saw them all the time because the job guys came you know you know that you just got used to their names you yeah. saw them every single weekend week out you know losing and um one was thin one was heavier and uh and then they went away then they weren't on for a while so i didn't think twice about it and then they um then they were back on and this time they were winning but they were the mod squad you know based on that tv show sort of i guess or that was a name for them you know they were like cop outfits mm-hmm. and they were going over and i was like huh and something clicked i'm like you know, you have to leave to come back. And so even when I was in WWE and I was getting ready to go to ECW, even if they would have said, we'll let you stay and do Raven, I wouldn't have stayed anyway because their perception of what it was going to be would have been channeled, would have been colored by how they perceived me as a person, how they perceived me, you know, as Johnny Polo and the whole thing. And I knew I had to overcome that if I was going to become somebody who could draw money. But now didn't, uh, how were you on the stick when you were young? I mean, now you would have been great, but how would you? How were you, how were you on the mic when well, you first? Day started? one, I could talk. I mean, I, I, I after only 
three months in the business, I was co-hosting uh, Florida Championship Wrestling and commentating with Gordon Soley. So don't you think you would have been a big deal then? Because that was a time where that was almost more important than yeah, the in-ring. Yeah, I mean, yes and no. Here's the problem was that um, I did a... Uh, I was supposed to come in when I was in Portland. I was supposed to come into WCW at, with an angle where I'd be a color commentator and... Um, and then I'd start to wrestle kind of like how Piper did. And um, except that I in that bridge accidentally, it wasn't one of my bridges. I, I burned, you know, with my, you know, like I usually do. This was a complete accident. Um, I didn't think I was ready yet. I figured if I'm not ready now and I go in, I'm not going to be so good. But when I'm ready in a few in six months or a year, then uh, I didn't realize that you have to take the openings when the openings come. And long story short, the um, the bridge uh, burnt, and so I had a fight and struggle to get back to an opportunity in WCW, and then commentating wasn't even thought of at that time. But then when I went to WWE, um, I started I, when Lawler was gone for six months or a year. They, Vince had me commentating with him, and which impressed him enough to make me an associate producer Monday Night Raw. Um, so my commentary was 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 good then, but. As Raven, I didn't feel like commentary was what, what was going to be my strong suit. Plus, I didn't want to get like even when I was doing Raven, like I could have, I could have just stayed as a commentator in a Monday Night Heat and stuff, and um, and progressed that way. But I didn't want to commentate. I wanted to wrestle. I wanted to be the best. You know, I still felt like I had an opportunity if I could ever get that chance, in uh, you know, to be on top again. You know, on a on a bigger company, I wanted to be on top. You know. Like looking back, I mean, if I was smart, I probably would have, you know, done what Ted did, what Taz did, and just bowed out when I when the, when I wasn't when I realized I wasn't going to be used the way I wanted to be, and just went for the commentary. But I never wanted to give up on what I really my real passion, which was working. How long did the associate producer the uh, producer thing for Raw last? I don't know that I ever knew that. Yeah, I was associate producer of Raw for like a year, and that's when I, I was doing that when I quit. Um, and when I quit WWE to become a, to go to ECW. Oh, so that was all before. Actually, actually I didn't quit to go. I didn't quit to go to ECW. I quit. And then I was going to try and go to, and I was supposed to go to, I wasn't, I didn't have any plans of where exactly to go, but I knew I had to quit because they had taken me off TV to be just a producer. And I was like, ah, this is, this is the beginning of the end of my career. If I do this, and I'm only, and it's only, this is 1992 or something or 94, maybe. And, uh, you know, it's only been in the business uh, six years, seven years, and I'm already, you know, being shuffled off to the office, which, you know, and I was being groomed for to be on a booking committee. Because um, I, I would, you, uh, and you wanted to work. You, that wasn't for yeah, you. Work. Yeah. So I didn't want to be in a booking committee. I wanted to work. You know, and uh, so, um, so I quit, and then I then I talked to Cornette, and he was going to bring me to Smoky Mountain, and one month led to a next month, to the next month, to the next month. And by him never bringing me in, I found I found ECW on the TV, fell in love with it, and uh, and got into ECW. Yeah, the Philly Rats and the Kentucky Rats are, are wouldn't be comparable. I think you, um, I think you landed in a better spot. Portland had the best. I've always asked, like, 
like just for that little travelogue where they were the best honky tonk waxed philosophical for for a half hour about each city and the qualities of each charlotte always got high ratings tampa always high ratings portland shocks me a little because i go to the i go to a stereotype of more of a lumberjack maybe hairy armpits Uh, type thing no portland's very trendy it's a very trendy city um the uh it's a great place i mean it was a great place to live i'm sure it is now 20 years later but I mean, it's awesome. I loved living there. It was one of my favorite places I ever lived. You're podcasting now. Yeah, for about a year, two years, no, two and a half years now, maybe something like that. How are you finding know. that? Uh, I mean, it's fun. You know, it. it you know, I, I, everybody likes listening to themselves talk. So, you know, well, who doesn't? Let's be honest. Who doesn't? You know, that's why people love therapy because you know what? What did uh, Will and Will and Grace say? It's like going being in the talk show. You're the only guest, and everybody loves you. Not surprised you're saying that. Um, do you have a co-host? Yeah, I got two: uh, Rich Bocchini and uh, Joe Feeney. See, that's the that's the home run there. That's the home run. Well, yeah, of course. I like to I, myself. Yeah, see, that's why I could never do that because I, I would just get bored. Um, and. Like, so when Jericho um, offered me to spot on the Jericho Network, you know, hosting my own show, you know, I figured I can do interviews, but he's doing that. So if I just pick a different plus, I don't want to have to arrange someone to show up every, you know, every week, you know, and try and schedule it. And you got to call in favors, you know, or, or call in favors on people you don't even know, <laughs> you know, what's it like? Uh, it's the jury duty of the night of the of the millennium. Well, you're giving them plugs. This is fucking like the Tonight Show does it. You know, you talk to me for a little while and I'll get people to go buy your shit. It's, a, right. it's an exchange. No, I'm saying, but, you know, but the uh, I'm, I'm just saying, but it's it's kind of like, you know, in, um, it's it's not a big deal. But it, it seems like, you know, whenever you schedule like the, the, the do one, it always something comes up. And then, you know, so if you're the guy that has to interview people. You know, and if something comes up, you got to have a backup plan. You got to, you know, you got deadlines. So I, I just wanted to get a co-host that was good or, I mean, that was great. And I had one, um, my buddy Busby, who, um, Chad Damiani. And, um, but after two years, it just, his schedule was just, he was, because he works so much that he's a clown. <laughs> he's an actual clown. Like he teaches clown mind, not mind, okay. but clown comedy and stuff. So and, now, uh, now, so what do you do if you don't have you and Joe Feeney and Mike Fungul, so, you all sit around and talk? Yeah, well, so so I had Busby and, and we just talked. And basically it was like we, it's the same conversation we probably have with each other for the most part with each other anyway. You know, we would just talk for an hour, hour and a half and just about everything that entertained us and pissed us off or whatever. And then when he finally couldn't do it, when we switched enough networks and uh, switched a couple networks. And we weren't making as much money, and uh, and his schedule really got in the way. I uh, he had a he retired, um, and so I found so I went to MLW. Oh yeah, I know why because the, the Jericho they canceled the Jericho Network. They just kept his show, which was you know because they want to. There's so many podcasts now, and it's hard to, to stay up in the rankings. Even though I think we're like 17th in Sweden. Right. <laughs> I got but, to, uh, I got to eighth. I was I was very proud of myself. So give give me right. advice. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a young acolyte of yours here. Um, I'm in the flock. I'm in the podcast flock. So 
give me give me some advice i i don't have any really i mean just enjoy your entertain yourself if you're entertained the guests are i i really believe that i don't care what entertains you if you are entertained if you're entertaining yourself people are going to be entertained because there's nothing more enjoyable than listening to somebody who's listening to somebody talk about stuff that they're excited about very interesting and so 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 I went to MLW when when the Jericho network collapsed and uh and um so uh, court said why don't you try this guy Rich Pacini who was uh, I guess he was a WWE commentator for a couple of years and then it didn't work out for him so he's now he commentates for MLW and so so me and Rich started doing it but it was something was missing and so um I uh this guy Joe Feeney who does some of he's on Conan's podcast sometimes I mean, now he's a regular. Uh, he was, I guess he was helping Conan with some stuff. And then he became a regular, like a regular third wheel. And so I brought him on and then it just kind of clicked. And, um, and it just works. I mean, we just basically talk about, you know, shit that entertains us, that pisses us off, you know, that, you know, like it, it could be from one week, it could be about my dog, you know, for 10, 10 minutes, we could talk about my dog and his, and his, uh, recent surgery to, <laughs> You know, to spend 30 minutes talking about, you know, why wrestling territories had limited amounts of sports teams in them for some mm-hmm. reason, it seemed like. Uh, which was, I just think, or, as you know, as the podcast market muddies further, it, it was the struggle for me was like someone can still succeed if they if they bring their magic like what what is your magic power and and if your magic power translates to podcasts you know, banter well yours is banter right so like but so that's why I was figuring like why well, I have to find my magic power before cuz I've been asked by workers before to like hey let's you know why don't you do my pod why don't you get a podcast up with me you could be on the air with me and I always I felt so obligated to anybody yeah. like who listens that I can't just sit there and you know be that guy that drags the yeah, wrestler out every week i was surprised when you when you called and you when you had one that uh, you told me you had a podcast and you were interested because it doesn't you're more of a behind the scenes tinkerer than you are you know no i don't know tell me again, you have a genuine interest in people so which i think is your strong suit i think that's your that's right. your superpower when it comes to podcasting is your genuine interest in people but I also, you know, but I, I mean, you're an interesting guy anyway. Like people probably don't know you do voice work and, you know, all kinds of and acting and stuff like that. So, I mean, you know, no, they do I, now. That's some of what I talk about here. But but you're right. You're 100 percent right. Uh, you're perceptive cat that I said my superpower. I can't just do a show. My superpower is I have to be able still. And I didn't know if I could do it on a podcast. And I'm not sure I can actually still. But I ha- I could sit. I know I could sit across from somebody in person when there's physical space and energy and I could engender their trust rather quickly and have them talking about whatever I want that I knew, but I don't know if it can happen electronically, but you know what though? That's, that's what I was worried about. So my first co-host for the first two episodes was swinger. Cause I wanted somebody who would be like on look in the same location as me. Who are these and people Bug- swinger and Bugby and you know, Johnny, you've heard of Johnny swinger. He was a worker anyway. But Busby, he uh, lives in California. He's like one of my best friends. 
So when when Swinger couldn't do it because he had a you know because he had family time you know that it was getting in the way of his his uh, taking his kids to hockey practice and stuff like that. Um, I called Busby up and I was afraid because we were doing it on Skype and without filming it on Skype because apparently it doesn't record as well when you film it when you put the fit when you put the visual as well as the audio it doesn't record as well. Mm. So they said you got to do it with just the. But but I found that it's that it's no different than having a conversation. Um, and after two weeks, I mean, by the end of the first episode, it, I was like, why do I even worry about this? So I I don't think it, it's a problem. I mean, you know, and I don't think you're having a problem. I think you're you know, I think you're doing great. I mean, you know, so well, I we know, know I mean, each other, though. It's it, it's it's different when the challenge was always like when someone like Tully Blanchard would walk in. Right. Mm-hmm. And you know, he doesn't want to do this. I'm talking right, about right. on camera, not not a podcast. When he would walk into kayfabe, and, but you know we're paying, so you know they 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 would do it, and and it's fucking shit like this popping up and fucking making noises on my computer, all this shit I can't control. Anyway, so when someone like Tully, Tully Blanchard would walk in, and I'd have to I'd have to disarm him within a few minutes of being on camera. That was always the challenge, and but. Yeah, you have to get them interested in talking about themselves, and once they start, there it's hard to get them to stop. But you have to get them to start is the main thing. But I don't think it makes a difference. Um, I really don't on Skype. I mean, I think uh, I think it's just a matter of confidence for right. you. We'll you know, because we get a get, we put on guests occasionally. You know, mm-hmm. every so often I'll find someone interesting I want to talk to, like. I got that flat earth guy on about a year and a half ago before everybody else did when it was just getting big. And, uh, and, you know, immediately we, you know, the guys just talking flat earth is just so preposterous. I mean, just mind bogglingly preposterous, but, uh, this guy sold on it, you know, and, uh, and he has good arguments and, uh, it was a really, and I never got, I, that's the, I got more social media response and, and so negative, towards him I mean, not towards us you know towards me it was like what a schmuck what a jackass but we got so much feedback on social media because you know because we had this debate with this guy about so about uh flat earth and apparently it intrigued people you know about how somebody could believe in that but i mean but 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 the guy opened up immediately you know listen you're a member of mensa i like to point out so people could be even more annoyed by you. And, <laughs> and um, listen, I, I, I can't pass the test now. Since I've had kids, it's gone. The mind is gone. So, so I couldn't pass it now. There might have been one time where I could have placed somewhere. Um, did you ever? No way. There's no way I could pass the test now. There's no way. Well, after the chair shots, no. But, but you did. And so now, right. did you ever consider, like, just wearing the fucking card around your neck and walking around? It's, it's the ultimate like they talk about fuck you money that's like fuck you life creds if you if i if i if i would have joined when i was 25 i probably would have got a tattoo of it on my forearm <laughs> i love it what a what a great heel gimmick though you never consider that wearing a fucking mensa card around your neck no because honestly i didn't even join until until years my career was almost was on the down on the, on the on the way down when i finally joined um they actually called me up and they go uh they said, they go, uh, yeah, we have, uh, we, we see that you've mentioned on TV that you're a member of Mensa and uh, we don't have you in our records anywhere. They go, they go, would you like to join? I'm like, 
I'm like, well, the reason I don't have any records is, I, no, I go, the reason I don't have any records is I'm not a member, but, you know, my IQs, I, my IQ, you, you know, test was high enough to be a member, but I never joined. They go, well, would you like to? I'm like, sure. So I had to send them my IQ records and then they, uh, then I joined. But <laughs> Was there like a certification you needed that the IQ was real? Yeah, yeah, something like that. And, uh, yeah, but, but it's so funny, though, that they're like, oh, we don't have you, we, uh, we see you, uh, uh, bragging about us but we don't really have any records i'm like oh <laughs> that's great that they found you though yeah they watched yeah. you on tv and said wait this look this guy up <laughs> listen anyone in aew feel free to have raven come and and be your manager for that gimmick like team mensa team iq um i opened this up to twitter to see um what your public wanted to know scotty um jesse wilkins says what's your opinion on icp and how is it working with them same question for sean you take it first i enjoyed working with icp i mean you know it was so much fun like in the in the first couple um uh what's it i forget the gatherings you know the doing a show at midnight yeah, yeah. Well, the first one was a blast the second one was less of a blast the third one i don't know if i did two or three but it just, you know, it gets to, to be a lot, you know, going to the ring at, you know, one or two in the morning, you know. And, uh, but no, I always liked the clowns. I mean, I got along really well with them. Yeah, me too. The, uh, they were great. Yeah, they're good guys. Uh, Benny Douglas would like to know, when was your first great match and your last great match? Um, wow, I don't even know. My first great match probably didn't happen. Probably happened in Portland, and my last great match probably happened in TNA. Any opponent come to mind? Uh, I mean, I, I've had a lot of. I don't think I ever had the best match I was capable of, though. Unfortunately, like I just don't think I was ever in the right spot at the right time, having the right match. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um. Ted Cunterblast, thank you. Would like to Is that know. a real name? Is that a real name? It's on Twitter, so it's got to be real. Good old Cunterblast. Remember old Cunterblast. How is Raven's physical condition? How does he manage the pain? Percocet, right? <laughs> no, I've been drug free for years. Um, the um, I'm not really in any in any pain. You know, I got like, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night last night and my. One of my, I think, tendons is frayed in my knee, so it started hurting. My knee locked up, and it kept me up all night. But, you know, and then, um, um, you know, I had a heart attack three years ago. But even that, I mean, all that was was I woke up in the middle of the night. My, I had heartburn. It was so painful. I couldn't, like, I had to go to the emergency room. So uh, Selena drove me to the hospital. Uh, they go, hey, you're having a heart attack. Don't go anywhere. I'm like, okay. They go, you're going to cut the line in the morning. We're going to keep you overnight. You're going to cut the line in the morning, 6 a.m. You're going to get a stint put in, and then you'll be go back home. I'm like, all right. And then it was, the, then the, that was the next day. And then the day after, it felt like it was uh, like I never had a heart attack. Right. Those stents sure. are amazing. What they could do with the stents. You know what? You we were doing Ravens Wrestler Rescue when that happened. Okay. It was, right. It was a series we had where uh, we would bring Raven into an indie federation, and he would pluck up some unsuspecting talent with a bad gimmick and he would give them uh, a makeover. I still think the show was great and, and should have yeah, been. I, do. I really enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed working with you. Um, maybe in a new, in a new forum, we could do that again in the old forum where, you know, it was like a la carte programming. 
it wasn't working. But, you know, maybe with all these networks now and stuff, it, it could fly. But so anyway, so we were doing this and Scotty would basically have to come out and come up with a gimmick and like dress the guy and, you know, come up with a walk, a talk, everything. I had to remake the guy completely. So, you know, it's a lot of work. And so I get a call for, from you and I kayfabe this. I, have, I didn't tell a soul other than Anthony when we were working that um, you were like, hey, uh, listen, uh, you know, I got that, you know, we, I know we got that thing coming up, um, but I just had a heart attack. <laughs> I was like, fuck. And you were like, just do me a favor. Don't tell anybody. I was like, okay. So, but, uh, yeah. so I never told you. So you went public with that finally. Yeah. I, I mean, but I brought it, I brought it up so casually. Like I just happened to mention it in passing on the podcast. I didn't want to come out and say like, whenever guys get injured, they always like all of a sudden it's like you read the observer and it's like a press release, you know? so-and-so you know had knee surgery or i'm like eh, it's, it's a heart you know, attack it's not knee surgery it's a heart attack right i'm like yeah i don't want to it's not you know i was like yeah you know it's, it, no matter how i say it it's going to be taken you know people are going to have their pre- preconceived notions of what a of what a heart attack entails and mine was so so nonchalant in so many ways that, you know, it was like, a boom, you know, it was over and done with. It was so quick, and I was sending out of the hospital, you know, and, and one over, all was was overnight because I came in the middle of the night. I came in like 3 in the morning, left at 8 in the morning or 7 in the morning. Do you get treated more quickly if, if you're a member of Mensa or you have to wait with everybody? Uh, no, the heart attack gets you a front door service. I mean, that, that was like, boom. They were like, oh, no, come right in. Right. As soon as they heard heartburn, they were like, come on in. You know what you did for for me? I have to tell you this, that um, more so than anything you did in the ring, who cares about oh, thank that, for, really? Thank you for keeping that quiet when I wanted to keep quiet. Thank you for that. I didn't tell a soul. I, I know um, you did. Even even when you were on Breaking Kayfabe, I said, how is your health? I know you're diabetic. Right. And, and I, I left. I wanted to see where you were going to go. And you didn't go there, so I didn't bring it up. Yeah, but I thank you for that. No, no problem. I never... Um, but, uh, but I did release those pictures of you with the goat immediately as soon as I, I, I got them. Yeah. Sent them right to the fucking Inquirer. Um, you, know what, the name was- you know what you did? You told me on air that the sleep uh, gene, the sleep part of the brain, lies right next to the hunger part of the brain. Yeah. So when I get up at night, I have this thing where I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm ravenous, like I haven't eaten in a month, and I tear through the house, cereal, fucking whatever there, and I'm eating in my dining room in the dark in the middle of the night, and then I'm going to go lay down, I get the acid reflux, it's horrible. But you told me I'm not really hungry. Right. This is yeah, next. It was liberating. Crazy? I don't have to eat when I, I get up and I go right the fuck back to bed now. Right. Cause yeah, good. Good. All right. More questions. A couple more from Twitter here. Let me just get, uh, let me get Mr. Mike Campbell. I always wanted to know this. Why did he want to beat the fuck out of Brett Sawyer when they were both wrestling in Florida? Oh, I didn't want to beat him up then. Um, I didn't, I never wanted to beat him up until he had jumped me and, uh, he took a sucker punch at me. And then I started beating him. I started, uh, not, I hit him. And then his two giant buddies came after me, and I had to fight all three of them at once. But that's a whole other story. Okay. But uh, Ian says, uh, I know he said he doesn't like Vince McMahon, but what did he learn from him during his run as Johnny Polo while working as a broadcaster? 
and Monsoon as well, for that matter. I thought he had great chemistry with Gorilla. Yeah, I, I felt like, thank you. I felt like I had great chemistry with Gorilla too. Like, I, I really liked him. He was he was fun to work with, you know. Um, and uh, I don't know, from Vince, basically, perception is reality. You know, how people perceive you, that's the reality, regardless of whether it's true or untrue or anything. Very good. You know, but people, if people think you're a drug addict, even if you, even if you're straight edge, that's how people are going to perceive you. And that's how you're going to, that's what your reputation is going to be regardless. You know what the truth is, the perception is the reality in this, in, in this business anyway. Salvatore Martone for Raven, you have a robust sense of humor. Conversely, though, the Raven character was a reflection of some dark and heavy shit you had to deal with. Was there any moment during that initial ECW run where you felt any joy and laughter, or was it permanent dark? No, I enjoy. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Um, the uh, I just refused to put. I refused to show it. You know, and, and externally, internally, I was having the, the greatest time ever. You know. Scotty, thank you so much. Where can we find you? Where can we listen to you uh, wax philosophical about all things with Johnny Fungool and Joe Feeney and everybody else? <laughs> uh, the Raven Effect podcast. Uh, you can find it pretty much on any, every, everything except, uh, except Spotify. For some reason, they, they just keep playing reruns. But uh, Apple, anywhere else, you can find the Raven Effect podcast. Uh, and I'm on Twitter with uh, the Raven at the Raven Effect. And that's pretty much it. Oh, and if you want to buy uh, Cameo.com, if you want to put words in my mouth for me to say, you want me to mansplain something to somebody, you want me to insult somebody, you want uh, you want me to uh, talk shit about somebody, your friends, tell somebody you love them, tell somebody happy birthday, just go to Cameo.com and pick me, and then I will uh, I will say whatever verbiage you want me to say. There it even is. If it's uh, even if it's the Mar- singing Mary Poppins or something, that's that's been, I'm saying every all of a sudden I feel like everybody's doing that now. It was like in the last week I saw everybody on cameo. This is a new thing, right? Yeah, yeah, Rel- relatively recent. All right, so you're done with jury duty now. What is it? Every five years, every three years now? How's that work? So I, I got to remember not to call you for three years. No, I, actually, I, I I will love whenever you call. I'm always uh, excited to talk to you. That was Raven. Love, love, love Scotty. Love him. Good guy. And hey, don't, don't, don't think I'm not considering doing that uh, Netflix series about his dad. You heard it here first. All right, let me jump to Twitter for a minute here. Found Objects uh, went ahead and and rented the the film I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, the 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 heaven and earth. What the hell was that thing called? The the world at your feet. It's been renamed. He said the the Asante movie was renamed Diamond Cartel and is available on Amazon Prime Video. Peter O'Toole's last movie ever and also had martial arts star Bolo Young from Enter the Dragon. Guessing you didn't dub those two. No, I I probably didn't. I don't remember what I dubbed from it. I I do know it's the worst thing I've ever worked on. But uh, Found Objects suggests... He actually sat through it, so, you know, props to him for it. And I feel like I owe him something. Um, there, there are other things I'm much more proud of, which leads to his 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 tweet that says, new feature at the end of every other kayfabe show, Sean's Movie Club, where he picks a movie he worked on, tells us about it, we watch, review it on Twitter, and he gets a three-cent residual check from the studio. Um, find, you see, I got to give you something something better, something to sink your teeth into, a clown in Babylon. I'm very proud of this work. 
this wasn't voice work. I was the director of photography on it. So I shot the film and I designed the look of the film. It's in beautiful black and white. It's about Frank Carroll, private detective clown, who has to go into the clown underworld uh, to, to avenge the murder of his father at the hands of two bad clowns when he was a child. He was shot right in front of him. Turns out they're members of the uh, Secret Society of Cascadian Monkfish. And it gets deep, man. It gets deep. A Clown in Babylon. Actually, there's a scene. I don't know if they cut me out of it. I, I did act in a scene there. They put me in a scene where <laughs> you'll see me. Just go find it. Um, so I shot that. So so that's uh, that's work I could be proud of. So I, I wouldn't have a problem with you go watching going and watching A Clown in Babylon. You may have to get the DVD. I don't know if it's streaming or anything. But... Um, yeah, that was one of those indies, man. Shot, uh, shot around the time that uh, Marcus Eisenstein, the at the aforementioned Mark Eisenstein, was doing his his. You know, he was my professor, and he was doing his independent films. It was a great movement in the '90s, the mid '90s. Everyone was shooting on film still, and I and I don't know if Clerks contributed to it, but it it showed that hey, indie films can get made and get get distributed and. Just in my film department alone, we had like three feature films being shot by students and teachers. All We were all working on each other's films, and it was a great time. It was a great time. And I'm not going to do the dinosaur thing about, uh, well, then came the avid, and uh, everybody began cutting on the video, and it, it was no longer an art, and anyone can do it. I won't do that. I'll spare you that. But if you if you want to watch something that's worth watching, go ahead and grab a clown in Babylon. Now listen, God is on God is on their side or God is on our side. Marcus's movie that I mentioned, I'm in that as well with Buster Poindexter. That's a trip. Marcus made another film called The Electric Chair, which I think was on Amazon recently, starring Victor Argo. It's a it's a just a it's I guess an hour and a half of a it's a one man monologue. It's Victor Argo on a stage in a nightclub having a, a mental breakdown. Yeah, that's the kind of shit we were making, man. You know? Oh, that's the kind of shit we were making. It was, uh, you know, I, I, I guess I'm the equivalent of one of these guys that wants to talk about the arm bar all day long. Talk about how they did it in, in, in Memphis, maybe in the Carolinas in the 70s, in the territory days. Got a little bit of that in me with the film stuff. So anytime I sit there and make fun of Corny or one of these other guys, you can throw it right the hell back at me with the film stuff. Trying to lose it. Trying to lose the artiste thing. Folks, listen, how much fun can be had in one day is my question. And, uh, and no more is the answer uh, here. So uh, we are going to wrap this up. I'd like to remind you that this has been a production of Sean Oliver Media, copyright 2019, music by the great Kevin McLeod, licensed by Creative Commons Attribution License. And listen, become a patron. Patreon.com slash Podcast. You can do it. You can help produce this show. And I'll give you a shout out. And you'll have the personal satisfaction of having created some art. Some, some art. Sean, why don't you be a shoemaker? I keep hearing this every week as I do this podcast. There's Marcus, the echoes of Marcus. You can make wonderful shoes. You can make men and men's shoes. You can make women's shoes. You can make men and women happy by making them wonderful shoes. Be a cobbler. Stop hosting podcasts.